Two years after Congress passed the Evidence Act requiring agencies to name chief data officers, or CDOs, CDOs themselves are still carving out a niche in their agency's operations. Chief data officers in a recent survey describe facing a mix of supervisory titles at their agencies, from the agency head to the chief information officer. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more on the findings. Who exactly is a chief data officer's boss? That answer is going to vary a lot depending on the agency. And for the first time, the Chief Data Officers Council is getting feedback on where agency CDOs fit within their agencies. In a survey of 40 agency CDOs, more than a quarter say they report directly to the head of their agency. Another quarter of respondents say they report to their agency's chief information officer. The CDO survey finds most agency data shops spend most of their time on data governance, policy, and strategy work. The survey also found many CDOs are spending a considerable amount of time building data skills at their agencies. With the CDO council and the CDO role and the Evidence Act in general, I think the bar has been raised and the expectations are going to continue to be raised. That's Ted Kauk, chairman of the CDO council and is the CDO of the Agriculture Department. At a virtual summit hosted by the Digital Government Institute, Kauk says the Biden administration is building on momentum around the federal data strategy. Kauk says the Biden administration has a particular focus on data supporting COVID-19 recovery, as well as climate change and increasing equity in government services. Kauk says the CDO Council is working to support those priorities, starting with ensuring greater access to agency data. We need to support our statistical officials in getting better access to data, our partners. We have to do so with privacy protections in place. And so that really significantly raises the bar. The reporting structure for agency CDOs draws some parallels to the growing prominence of chief information officers within the agency's hierarchy. But that's in no small part from congressional scrutiny. The Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, or FATARA, assigns agencies a letter grade based in part on whether their agency CIO reports directly to the head of their agency. But CDOs are a new addition for many agencies, and they don't have a mandate from Congress to have a direct line to the agency's top brass. The CDO Council, for context, has 80 members and is structured differently than the CIO Council and its 24 members. For what it's worth, Kauk, the head of the CDO Council, isn't pushing for any prescriptive measures around who its members should answer to. Kauk says each unique CDO reporting structure has its own challenges and opportunities. Kauk says that in his capacity as USDA CDO, he reports directly to the agency's CIO. We haven't provided any prescriptions. We have documented what the reporting relationships are. And I think there will be challenges and opportunities regardless of the specific reporting relationship. And I think we've seen successes with CDOs who report to CIOs or those who report to senior administration officials or others. But I think that is something that the community, and it is a new community, is going to develop and think about more in the future. A majority of the CDOs at large CFO Act agencies who took the survey said their CDO job is their primary responsibility. But many CDOs at smaller agencies say they have other primary responsibilities at their agencies. Kauk says that the CDO Council has a small agency representative, as well as a representative for the 24 CFO Act agencies. There are common needs, and there is a need for us to work across government when we're talking about leveraging data as strategic assets. So I think we're very fortunate that we have participation from all agencies on the council. Navy CDO Tom Sasala says having a CDO shop run out of the CIO's office also helps break down some of the IT silos that prevent data from being used more broadly across the enterprise. 
it's the pivot from the system-centric model to a data-centric model or an outcome-centric model, right? Because data has been wrapped up with the CIO for such a long time, it has become an IT thing for IT people in this sense that the system owners are also the data owners is a, I'll call it a pervasive cultural idiom, at least in the DoD, that we're trying to plod through. While the Navy's CDO works under its CIO, the CDO office previously operated under its chief management officer. That office, along with other service-level CDOs, could also be elevated within the Defense Department. DOD last month issued a memo creating a data council for all DOD components in order to coordinate data activities. As for the CDO's current station within the CIO's office, that work is getting buy-in from senior leadership. Sasala said his office recently showed the Secretary of the Navy some of its data insights, which he says could generally make it easier to obtain data from IT systems across the service. But I can say, hey, this data is going to answer this question for this purpose and influence this outcome. And they're like, oh, oh, oh okay. Right. As opposed to giving all the data in your system. And they're like, what do you want that for? Right. It, I, I got 27 cybersecurity rules that you're going to violate by doing that. So I do encourage folks to kind of approach it from that track and then bring them in on day one. Sasala says the Navy is also working on an inventory of its data assets, not just to enable the utility of its data, but also to protect it from cyber threats. We spend a lot of time talking about our cyber terrain, right? Well, the uh, adversaries aren't stealing our servers and our hardware, right? They're stealing the data on our servers. And so you might map out your cyber terrain. You might know what systems that you have. You might know what servers are out there, but you really need to know what data is on them. Should they become compromised or infected in some manner? If nothing else, the most recent uh, solar winds attack kind of leads you down the road of, well, what did they really have access to? Air Force CDO Eileen Vadreen says the Air Force is also taking steps to get visibility into its data inventory to enable greater use. I would say that 20% of our data is on some amazing airman or guardian's desktop because they started collecting something because they recognized a gap and they see it from an operational perspective. But that goodness can be done, that data for good is necessary and needed at a strategic level too. So I think that like making data actionable and actually showing value helps identify and prioritize. Vadreen says the service has completed about a third of its implementation plan action items and another third are in progress. She says the service will work on the remaining third through fiscal 2022. Circling back to the CDO survey, a majority of CDOs say workforce hiring challenges or limited staff skills rank as the top challenges for their work. Sasala says his office is focused on a multifaceted upskilling of personnel, while a small group within the Navy are looking at best practices for hiring in-demand data talent. The CDO Council, together with the Office of Personnel Management and the U.S. Digital Service, launched a government-wide hiring effort in January to fill 60 agency data science positions. But Sasala says the Navy would be best served by raising the bar for data literacy for all new personnel. How do we make sure they're getting those most fundamental skills when they come on board? If you think about it, the relatively newer military folks are the predominant producers of data. Vadreen says the Air Force now has data offices in all of its major commands and function areas. 
to keep this pipeline of talent flowing. Vadrine says the Air Force has also partnered with a small online learning company to build a data governance boot camp. Vadrine says the Air Force stood up the boot camp in her first year on the job as CDO and is about to launch its next iteration. That gives everybody a baseline that's in the data governance perspective because we found that they all had different backgrounds. Jory Heckman, Federal News Network. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision 
and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, 
but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet, or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor, we call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.